Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Oh, I'm Murph and Ken all here with today's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Ken. Hello there, Owen and Ken. Hello, how are you? You may remember last week we briefly mentioned a water report that placed golf, somewhat surprisingly, above athletics on the doping bad boy list. That was behind only weightlifting and equestrian sports. Uh, there may be slightly different interpretations of what constitutes an adverse analytical finding in golf as compared to athletics because track and field has come roaring back to the fold over the weekend thanks to the staggering report by Real the Sunday show Times. Real force by them. <laughs> yeah. They knew that they'd lost their They're not going to take this kind of crap lying down on. ARD TV station. It was a joint venture between them and the Sunday Times. Maybe we shouldn't be too staggered by these sort of numbers and the findings of the leaked IWF documents but the way they were presented in the Sunday Times it's one of those ones that I suppose this is what investigative journalism is supposed to do the people involved in writing up the story know about this for a long time they're presenting it in such a way that kind of knocks you back a little bit I was reading the bullet points in the front page you get to the fleshed out version of that inside the paper that's the first time you've seen all these numbers so you're just getting your head around all of that then there's another article with a different angle another one about the 2005 World Championships of 1500 metres women's race there where there are a bunch of Russian athletes doped up to the eyeballs uh, apparently with the knowledge of the IAAF certainly in terms of what the blood values uh, how the blood values were interpreted by the experts at the Sunday Times had working on it the IAAF should have known what was going on there but allowed the women to race at that stage so it was just article after article of uh, with, mm. with detail after detail Sounds like you needed to lie down after it all on I had. I did have taken in stages, Murph. Then I yeah. read the first few, and then I read the the last few. Were you surprised? Again? Um, surprised in what way? Surprised by what? The extent of the doping. The stats: a third of medals in endurance events at the Olympics and World Championships being won by athletes who've recorded suspicious tests. At least suspicious. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't surprised by that at all. No. One in three. Um, but you that's, know, that's kind of the point that Owen is making, though. That you shouldn't be when you're asked a question like that. I'm not even making a point. Yeah. I'm genuinely wondering. Yeah, yeah. there, there it's, is it's, a difference though between also suspicious and, you know, actually illegal. Yeah, they make this point within the, there are two right. So they get these two experts, uh, Michael Ashton being one of them, who people might be very familiar with. But both experts, I think, have been involved in anti-doping cycling over the years. Uh, Ashton was, would have been quoted quite widely around the Lance Armstrong uh, expose. But the they essentially got their pen got their yellow marker, their red marker, mm-hmm. uh, and looked for anything suspicious. The suspicious, essentially they started from, the, they find a suspicious test, they look for any outside reasons that could potentially be influence, influencing this test, and if there are any, or if there might be any, then they just leave that as suspicious, uh, and they uh, would flag that up if they were involved at the moment, if it was a current case, they'd flag that up for further investigation, and for that person probably to be target tested, or whatever it might be. But then they also went above that, and a bunch of them, they 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 went uh, a step above that and they categorized them as very abnormal, highly suggestive of doping. So doping, in other words. Mm-hmm. If that's how high these blood tests were, they were beyond, there was no natural explanation 
for what how the these blood levels could be as high as they were in these athletes. So that just 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 to uh, maybe uh, have that discrepancy discrepancy between the two there. More than eight hundred athletes uh, recorded blood tests that were highly suggestive of doping, or the very uh, abnormal Russia emerges as the blood testing epicenter of the world. Mo Farah and Usain Bolt, apparently no abnormal results from those two. So that's the kind of, uh, they're the ballpark numbers, but you're not remotely surprised by any of these. Um, I think if I was a clean athlete, I might be a little bit annoyed that, that Mo Farah and Usain Bolt got, um, you know, waved through, you know, everyone. Oh, by the way, you know, no one is to think that Mo Farah and Usain Bolt come up in on any of these lists. I'm like, well, why, why can't you say me as well? Why, why is it just these two guys who get, you know, I mean, I suppose, okay, they're the highest profile guys um, and there's plenty of speculation about them. Of course, yeah. Um, still, though, uh, everyone else now is under, who hasn't been <laughs> exonerated. It is kind of, you know, those two guys, okay, we don't have anything on them, but everyone else, yeah. we're watching you. The athletes who were named, the only, the only named people who had subsequently been banned, and this was, there was a whistleblower involved in this who works in the IAAF, uh, or certainly had access to those files, and the whistleblower said, listen, I don't want you going around naming all these names of people, that's not what I, w- I want. This to be a general piece, a general investigation into the state of doping in the sport. Well, so that's why you're not necessarily getting name after name of uh, people, which m- w- wouldn't necessarily be the right way to do it anyway. What were you going to say? You were, were you were reading this in the in the paper version of Sunday Times, right? Yeah, the Irish version. You went, you didn't have a trip over to the UK or anything to pick up your copy. No, it was an Irish Irish board version. Did it have the story? We fought fair and we lost. Did that make the Irish edition or was that just a... Yeah, there is one of those, yeah. Oh, it is in there. Yeah, all the British athletes who've been wronged over the years. I was reading it on. Um, I was reading it online and I was. I thought, really? Are they really saying that? This is... But it, it is kind of odd to think this is how people think all over the world. You know, in the yeah. same way that Irish people are genuinely shocked that an Irish athlete... I mean, it's just not what we do. It's just not part yeah. of our... Ma- it's, for whatever reason, you know, Jeanette, over thousands of years, we've evolved into a race that doesn't cheat. We don't. We don't. We do, that's cheat, just yeah. not us. We don't do that. Uh, like, and it's bizarre to think that every other country thinks it. it's weird. Just by a quirk of, you know, we're close to the sea. We're an entirely landlocked country. Um, it's our great mountain ranges. Our, uh, you know, our vast plains to stretch out to the horizon. Just for whatever reason, we have evolved into a nation that, for us, cheating. We just don't we do don't it. We don't do it. We understand why people in other countries... We can see it. We can see it's obvious that they cheat all the time. Yeah. The East Germans, the Russians, always cheating. Of course, then it turns out the West Germans during that time were cheating just as much. The Americans were cheating much in a much more sophisticated way than the Russians. Um, there were a lot of... There were, everybody was cheating. There were a number of British athletes flagged up as suspicious. There was one who fell into the other category, that higher category we talk about there. And the way it is made out in Sunday Times, they feel this athlete has a lot of questions to answer they put those questions to the athlete who said uh, if you put this if you put my name to this I will sue you and you're not going to get your money back like you did with Lance Armstrong oh. in other words I'm not doping right uh, so that was the altercation that they had I, I mean you know I, I just think it's a bit I mean maybe they're playing to the guy. I, I don't even know why a newspaper actually would, would write that story I'm not uh, I don't mean to have a big go at the same times here who have got a good story here just this particular aspect of it uh, we fought fair and we lost. Maybe they're just quoting a couple of of athletes, a couple of individual athletes. I don't, I, I don't know, but it sounds to me as though you know Britain has lost out here by playing fair. Well, they did go against uh, Johnny Farner. Against Johnny, Johnny Farner, they did tug at the heartstrings where one female athlete had actually lost out on a marriage proposal. That was the most ridiculous story I've ever read. <laughs> Lisa Dubrisky, Lisa Dubrisky claimed that she'd lost out on a marriage proposal, and as she, Excuse, sorry, I, you're going to have to w- well, walk me thing. back here. Well, I, I thought. I, because of this, I thought, well, I mean, I want to read this. I mean, I know that I've, I've heard about athletes losing out of medals, but how did, the, how did she lose out in the marriage proposal? What happened? So I read down through it, and I was scanning through, and there was loads of stories about this and that. Um, anyway, here, so here's the bit. When Dubrisky set off in one of the most important 1,500 metres races of her life, uh, she had no idea the two women she was battling to keep up with had recorded blood scars, blood scores that were off the charts. Both women were tested for blood doping during the competition. Uh, one woman recorded an off score, the measure of her red blood cells of 121.5, meant the probability she was clean was 1 in 10,000. 
the other, other registered at 128.5, giving a 1 in 100,000 chance of being clean. Um, an emotional Dabrisky said last week, that race has haunted me for my entire life. Both of those women beat me. I had always assumed it was a clean race, but it sounds like I was wrong. That race had a huge effect on my life, not just my professional life, but also my personal life. It affected me mentally. All I could think about was how I'd missed out. My whole life built up to that one moment and it never happened. Okay, so this... This is the all the marriage proposal, though. I can talk to Mary. Okay, okay. The marriage proposal. <laughs> See, that's that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, okay. Let's okay. get to the yeah. The blah, emotional blah, blah. strain after the race was so great that her boyfriend decided to cancel his plans to propose to her. <laughs> I thought, Jesus, that's harsh enough. What should have been a happy time turned into something which, even now, is a painful memory. And now the next line is a quote from Lisa Brisky: "My husband, who was then my boyfriend, had this whole plan to propose." Dabrisky said, after the competition, we're going to take a break, go off together. He was going to ask me to marry him. It would have been the best moment of my life. But I was so upset after the race, he decided it wouldn't be right. I found it hard to get over. So that, so yes, that one race has changed my entire life to a certain extent. Well, she's, but he, she didn't <laughs> they were, marry they the were, they, I know, I think they might have been reaching a little bit for the human interest angle I there. Really, what, <laughs> yeah. Which shouldn't you obscure think? the my fact that there was a lot of... My boyfriend. No, there was a lot of great work story. done. There was, there no, was. No, no I'm not talking work. about that specific angle. Yeah, there was great yes, There was great good reporting done. done there with the... And it's, it's, to, it's actually was... totally wrong what we've done here. What I've done, I'll take the responsibility for this by focusing on this one story and this particular anecdote. I mean, I, I almost sound like someone who's got an axe around here who's trying to discredit the whole thing. Maybe I'm doping. Maybe <laughs> I want to call the, the credibility of the whole thing into question just by focusing on this one, you know, these imperfections as I see it. You're somehow he was even writing doping. articles during the summer. I mean, it, this is a level of productivity we just actually haven't ever seen before in journalism. I would call it, in fact... Extraterrestrial. We've got a world champion in <laughs> studio today. Andy Lee is in promotional mode ahead of his fight against Billy Joe Saunders in September. Uh, different kind of pressure on Andy now. He's champion, hometown fighter, big, big stadium in boxing terms that they're hoping to sell out. So we'll talk to him about that. We'll ask him about Billy Joe Saunders' comments about women's boxing and women in society too. But let's get on with this doping story. David Epstein is the author of The Sports Gene and David also did a lot of great work in uh, exposing what's been going on or allegedly going on anyway at the Nike Oregon, Oregon Project. Alberto Salazar, Mo Farah's coach implicated in that one and Galen Rupp, one of the top distance runners in the world. That was David Story who joins us now. David, are you shocked by, by this one? Are you shocked by the scale of doping exposed by the Sunday Times? Yes and no. I mean, it's it's sort of in its comprehensiveness the amount of uh, doping data they were allowed to analyze is, is incredible. I mean, I don't think that's something that we've seen in any sport um, ever. So that was just really interesting to see. But in terms of the proportion of athletes and medalists uh, in in athletics that I would have guessed were uh, doping, the range I would have guessed, it's pretty similar to the range I would have guessed. So in sort of the details and comprehensiveness, I'm, I'm surprised and, and very impressed. An amazing story. It doesn't, I wouldn't say, change my concept of how many athletes I thought um, were, were possibly up to something. Yeah, no, it's a fair answer. The, the two experts working on it. Is this, the, is, is this a dream case, do you think, for people in this field to be working on, to have literally 10 years worth of blood tests for a sport like track and field to pour over? I do because you know so often it's it's anecdote 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 and even even for someone like me who's worked on you know in all the major American sports um, and, and doping stories some of which have been very explosive even people who you've caught you know and saying well how many of your peers and colleagues do you think are cheating you'll get you'll get answers from two percent to eighty percent so even, even they don't usually know you know so to bring something out like this that and again a lot of these tests were highly suspicious right and there's a reason why they're high, they're suspicious and not positive some of them could be due to other things but let's assume that the the large majority of them um, are probably people who are cheating you know you don't we really even the athletes themselves never get this concrete of a look at how many of their peers might be cheating. Well, this is interesting and this is something that I wanted to ask you about because the work you did say on the uh, story around the Nike Oregon project was based uh, on a few things but it was certainly based to a large part on athlete testimony on actually speaking yeah. to people. This is something that David Walsh has been talking about recently with regards to the Chris Froome story. This debate on how much you can go by numbers and testing and all that and how much you actually really can expose things by uh, talking to people, and are, are you of the opinion that you need that you need both, or that one is more important than the other in 2015 in terms of the fight against doping? 
Well, I'm, I'm definitely of the opinion that you need both. And I think the you know, authorities like the World Anti-Doping Agency are increasingly of the opinion you need both. And if you look at the way that they've been changing rules, you know, we've seen over the years now that testing just is not always going to get it done. So just to, to put it quickly, say that a lot of anti-doping tests would never work in most workplaces because they're not looking for the actual drug. So the athletes are clever. So they use substances that mimic what's in the body like testosterone or EPO or growth hormone. And so you have to come up with these clever tests that don't look for the drug, but they look for other fluctuations. And that means that you have to set these sort of statistical criteria saying, well, this looks like it's not quite positive and this looks like it is positive. So you have to leave these huge buffer zones to make sure you don't catch people who are innocent accidentally. And because you leave those buffer zones, you give a huge amount of room for people to cheat. So we know the testing will never make it all the way for those substances. And so if you look at the way that WADA has been changing rules, it's to put more resources towards investigations, um, to further incentivize people to become whistleblowers when they do get caught, uh, to make greater penalties for coaches and support personnel and hope that they will give information. So I think a huge portion of anti-doping has sort of moved toward um, looking more like law enforcement in the sense that it, it gets informants, it, it tries to get you know, leaked information from labs and that sort of thing. Do you find, David, that this kind of human intelligence, maybe you could call it, is easier to come by these days than maybe it was in the past because of a, uh, maybe a change in culture among athletes? I mean, for instance, everybody was able to see that Lance Armstrong, um, the way the the sort of exposure of, of Lance Armstrong's operation um, and, you know, this this was sort of played out before the whole world. Everybody got to see it in quite a lot of detail. Um, the culture of Omerta that that, was, that that all sort of rested on was exposed sort of for everyone to see and understand. Is it maybe the case that having seen it in action, people are less willing now to be bound by it? Athletes in other sports even, well, you know, there's actually no need for me to, to kind of be you know part of this silent sort of operation that that keeps that that keeps dopers uh, from exposure is that something that's maybe changing since Lance? I do think so, at least in certain sports. I mean, I can tell you when I was doing the reporting on the Oregon project, um, people were really afraid to speak, so you'd talk to them over because it's this sport's a small world, right? And and people really can be sort of exiled from it, um, and they depend for a lot of their income on things that happen off the track, you know, like being promoted by companies and things like that. And, but you'd talk to them over time, and almost, I mean, maybe seventy five percent of the people at some point in a conversation, it would come up the Lance Armstrong investigation and what had happened there, and how things had turned out, and how. Uh, you know, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency had been very serious and credible about it. And so I think that made a huge difference. You know, in some of the – some other sports, you know, like like American football where the, the testing is so lax that people don't get caught very often, it, it doesn't become an issue. And I'd say there's, there's still as much omerta as ever. But in, in some of the Olympic sports, I think absolutely 100 um, percent. And that was really impressed upon me when I was talking to athletes uh, in reporting on the Oregon Project. Up until one of the aspects of the uh, the Sunday Times story was up until the blood passport was introduced in two thousand and nine, or up until the point that the IWF took it on, they had all these blood tests, and the Sunday Times highlighted the twenty two thousand and five World Championships, the fifteen hundred meters uh, women's race, and that one when there were a bunch of these Russian athletes who were showing not just suspicious tests according to the experts now, but tests that were completely off the charts, and it was clear to anyone based on these blood tests that something wrong was going on. But at that point, the IAAF didn't actually, unlike other sports, they didn't use that as a standalone means of outing an athlete. They just used the blood tests in order to decide who they would target their urine testing on, which seems to me, aside from anything else, seems to be a slightly inefficient use of resources. Why would they do that? Why would a, an organisation not back their blood tests to give them enough information that they could ban an athlete and make that ban stick? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Um, you know, it's it's it it doesn't seem like the best way to go about it to me. At the same time, I know sometimes when they've been um, sort of progressing toward new testing methods, they'll use things only for targeting. You know, until they become more confident with it, until they gather more data, and so they they're sure they know what what a cheater looks like. And I mean, again, I, I agree with you. At, at the same time, if you look at some of the cases that. Uh, sports federations have lost in front of the court of arbitration for sport. Like there was a famous one with a cross-country skier who was so off the charts on the human growth hormone test. Like nothing had ever been seen like it. And they still lost the case because the court of arbitration for sport ruled that the, the, the spot, what's called the decision limit, 
where they decided to separate a, a, a negative test from a positive test was not sufficiently justified. I mean, any reasonable person looking at this test was like, this cannot happen. It's totally off the human chart. But, you know, and they, they still lost. And so in the age, you know, it was back in with Ben Johnson, it's like you get a positive test, okay, he's gone. But now there's this whole complex appeals process and arbitration and things like that. And so I think uh, it takes a lot longer for tests to be used concretely as a positive. I, I don't know if you saw the BBC documentary a couple of months ago where a journalist decided to take EPO and uh, see if he could cheat the system by doing so. Uh, did He was uh, doing training for, for cycling, whatever it might have been, you know, an average enough uh, athlete, this guy. Um, he did a, He did the EPO. He felt massive benefits. There were huge benefits in his time. He then went through the proper testing procedure. He had some unnamed source within uh, an accredited lab who did it for him. Uh, and nothing showed up particularly suspicious on his blood profile, having been <laughs> pumping EPO in, in, into him. How much do you trust the blood profiling and the blood passports as a means of actually catching athletes? Yeah, so I actually worked on that documentary. That was Mark Daly. Oh, cool. Um, Sorry, David. Yeah. So, no, not at all. The third part of the documentary was the Oregon Project, and I yeah, did the written yeah. part, and they did the film part. Um, and uh, Mark, so one thing I told Mark um, is... He, he wasn't entirely going through the exact testing that an athlete would because he was doing biopassport only and, a, and an athlete would actually have other testing outside of biopassport. So they may be caught by another test. He wasn't exactly mimicking um, the full amount of testing that an athlete would get. But he, he microdosed very effectively. You know, he used small doses. Um, so you know, might not get as much effect as if he used big doses, but he still certainly got some effect. And that's that's where you can sneak in. I mean, that's kind of the... That's kind of the bane of drug testing right now is, is if you can get that microdosing right, and he was able to do that. So again, he would have faced some more testing outside of Passport if, if um, you know, had he been uh, in the actual system, but that's, I'm sh- there are people doing exactly what he was doing. Mo Farah was not implicated in this. The Sunday Times were clear to say that there was nothing suspicious about any of his tests in your documentary. Similarly, there was nothing against uh, Mo Farah there. I mean, lots of people, we, we, we all look at his performances and everyone draws their own conclusions. But uh, is it fair to say that you, you genuinely haven't found anything, you didn't find anything yourself in the course of those investigations that made you suspicious about Farah's achievements? Correct. Yeah. Nope. Didn't, we didn't find any. It, it, you know, it didn't surprise me to hear it just came out. We didn't find anything, um, anything credible uh, that, that, you know, if, if we found something credible, uh, we, we would have... Uh, corroborated it and printed it. Just the latest on that story is that I was reading today that Alberto Salazar, the UK Athletics, are still working on the report, but there's talk that they may well sever their ties with him. How have you found the fallout to that? Of course, Salazar came out with this very comprehensive rebuttal of uh, a lot of your claims. Um, mm-hmm. How have you found that kind of uh, that kind of to and fro since the documentary came out? Um, it's it's been really interesting because obviously he's I think you know one of the most competitive humans alive and we expected him to come back very strongly. Um, we wish that he would have agreed to uh, just be interviewed and, and and be in the film and, and explain all those things then. But it, it doesn't totally surprise me the the report coming out of UK Athletics if it's true that they that they may part ways with him and, and we don't know that yet. But uh, if you look at his responses, he. he Almost, he confirmed almost all of the facts in the report and disputed the interpretations. But when he was confirming things like having tested testosterone on his son supposedly for the purpose of counter-sabotage, um, which is uh, a, a little bit hard to understand, um, you know, smuggling uh, various prescription medications in books and magazines, things like that, um, I, I figured... There, there could be some trouble for him uh, with regard to UK athletics. David, can I ask just one last question? You're obviously a, a keen athlete yourself. You're passionate about the sport. Will you sit down and watch the World Athletics Championships with any sort of sense of believing what you're seeing there? That's a good question. Again, for the most part, it doesn't change the proportion of athletes I thought were doping. So they said, I think it was about uh, like 8% overall of athletes and maybe they're more slipping through and it was something like 15 to 20 percent of medalists mm. so i guess it still means that most athletes aren't doping but a whole heck of a lot are um and you know it it, it does make me suspicious for sure and and if if one of these athletes who's sort of hiding in plain sight right like we've seen athletes like a 
like uh, Rita Jeptu or some of these, uh, some of the athletes who've been caught, in the Russian athletes that are having these late career renaissance or popping out of nowhere, right? And so sometimes it's not totally a surprise. I mean, I think you know it would be it would be wonderful to be able to believe um, that people do those amazing things because that's part of what sport is about. And yet they've lost all the benefit of the doubt. So I'll still watch, um, but I think there's a certain kind of achievement that just won't um, you know make me all tingly anymore. <laughs> All right, listen, we'll leave it at that. David Epstein, great to talk to you again. Thanks a million. Thank you. A flame hair, a flame hair, flame throw of truth, Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Ron. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. David writes for ProPublica. Now, if you want to have a read of any of his work, it's a, a news website. They use a tagline, Journalism in the Public Interest. And it was ProPublica who did that uh, documentary on... Um, and did that investigative report, I should say, on Galen Rupp and Alberto Salazar and all of that. Interesting that he feels athletes are more willing to speak out about this now. It's a question you put to him, Ken, mm. that uh, maybe the, the omerta has gone, although he did say it depends on the sport. It, there's not too many NFL players coming out and, uh, you know, pointing fingers at any of their colleagues it's at the moment. true. I mean, but, you know, I think when you do see a, a big operation like that, I mean, everyone was watching that. You know, it was like a kind of a dissection of this particular kind of a monster so everybody can see what's inside it and how it works. And actually people who aren't saying anything are part of the problem. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, it may, I think a lot of people would have looked at it and gone, you know, actually I'm not going to be one of those people who just says nothing. I'm just, you know, and you can see them kind of tweeting about it. People are more open, I think, about this, you know, speculating about athletes, other athletes in their sport. You know, people will do that kind of thing, which they used to do. Mm. And it's more egregious, I think, when you when you take into account, say, the Justin Gatlin thing is a really easy thing for, I mean, I say easy, it looks easy. Mm. Uh, athletes in the past have been loads even to comment on something as cut and dried as Justin Gatlin gets massive new contract from Nike uh, even though he's uh, served two drugs bans. Yeah. And the, the, I, I think it, it, in a situation like that, I mean, something like that actually emboldens athletes. And as you said, something like Lance actually emboldens athletes to just say, wait a minute, actually, this is ridiculous. And we do, as you say, have a part to play yeah. in eradicating it. You know that, like, you're not alone. Yeah, but the cycling on where it was, a lot of it was blown apart by the feds coming in and yeah. putting guns at people. I'm not sure if it was that dramatic, but... Uh, but say, them, say things certainly like... Certainly putting their badge at people say, and telling them that they had to testify. For instance, um, do you... What was the name of the guy who Lance bullied? What was his name again? God. Basson, Christoph Basson? Yeah. Do you think that would happen again the same way? Do you think the the big dog would be able to do that again? I wouldn't say there's anyone in any sport quite as powerful and dominant as Lance Armstrong was. Yeah, but does that have to do with, with their, position. you know, there's just no, they just don't make them like Lance anymore or has it to do with the fact that maybe all the others aren't quite as willing to be cowed or quite as, as ready to just avert their eyes as maybe was the case when Lance was doing it. Just, yeah. Maybe that's the difference that it makes. I'm not, you know, I don't know. I'm speculating. One more quick word on this and there's no doubt this was a welcome PR boost for Mo Farah. Good news that he wasn't on either the uh, the test suggestive of doping or the test that almost certainly looked like doping but I was interested there even hearing from David the blood testing involves looking for general disturbances and fluctuations as opposed to specific substances which is why some people some of the top guys it, just because you're not on this list uh, and just because the Sunday Times say this guy wasn't there's no suspicion about him doesn't mean that you're 100% categorically uh, can say that you're off the hook. Uh, it's just one thing I would say. It has always been the case, it always has been the case that some of the very top people are ahead of the testers in what they're using and the testers just can't pick it up for whatever reasons. There's also micro dosings we talked about that goes on there. So uh, again, nothing proven against Mofar and he's done well out of this weekend after some PR setbacks in recent weeks but doesn't necessarily mean that that's the 100% the end of the story. We got a great reaction to the piece we did last week about Adam Goods. You remember this one, the Australian Rose footballer who was on an indefinite break from the game 
after suffering from so much racial abuse. Well, Rowan Connolly was the Aussie Rules writer we spoke to. Uh, he spoke brilliantly about the issue of racism in Australia. He feels it actually became has become worse in the last 20 years. A couple of positive developments on this one. One is that Adam Goods is coming back. He will return to training this week. He's going to be playing, or available for selection anyway, against Geelong on Saturday. Their head coach, Adam Longmire, said he was humbled by the support he had over the weekend and he's grateful for the support from the football community, which brings me to the second development, which is the support that Longmire talks about. I don't know if you saw any of this, but there's lots of it at Sydney's game against Adelaide. The final minute before it started, it was taken up with a video package of goods in action. That ran right up to the first bounce. Adelaide fans at that game waving indigenous flags. Other teams around the country wearing armbands in tribute to him. Banners organised the stadium. One of the captains of one of the teams walked out with the number 37 jersey on his back for the coin toss, which is the jersey that Goods wears. So a lot of good things happened over the weekend. I read Rowan Connolly's piece about it on Monday uh, just to see because he'd been so strong and speaking to us. And he was sounding a lot more upbeat than he did on the podcast. He said the weekend might have been a pivotal moment in the polarising debate. So hopefully that will be the case. It's obviously going to take a lot more than one weekend, but definitely it's rare enough that any sport rallies around somebody in quite this manner. Uh, so that certainly was nice to see, and hopefully there might be some sort of positive long-term uh, effects out of all of it. Right now, Ken's going to tell us what is on the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What have you wanted? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Have you ever thought about owning an island? Your own island? It hasn't crossed my mind, no. No, I don't think most people really have. Um, Supposedly, this is a great dream of uh, a lot of people, and I don't think actually it's a dream that many people have at all. That and other questions addressed in the football show are joined in studio by WBO world middleweight champion turned promoter Andy Lee <laughs> how are you Andy alright yeah I don't know about the promoter part but yeah. well you've got the, the uh, Don King hair already so yeah, that's good yeah well, uh, the grey yeah, 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 <laughs> does it feel is it a bit, bit more intense on that side of it than any other fight well um, I think it would be anyway just because it's, it's, in, it's in Limerick so um, yeah and I have to do more just to promote the fight and be more involved in that side but yeah, it's more intense on that side of things now. I read that that's why you're training in Surrey this time rather than Monte Carlo, where you've talked about before. Yeah, well, um, we were based there, but um, for personal reasons, Adam wanted to move back to the UK, so it's kind of worked out better. Um, it's not because of the fights in Limerick, just that okay. things ended in, in South Africa. Oh, right, I read that it was kind of just you needed to stay close to no, Limerick to get over no, and back. It's no. uh, amazing the things that, that yeah. the, the, the more that's written it about sounded good. It sounded good. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like it was intentional. Uh, at the first press conference, that there's. You've obviously gone, done a very, this very particular strategy to the selling of tickets, and that's to make them affordable, which I think is great, and, and therefore try to sell as many as possible, which sounds straightforward, but th- there's a couple of ways of doing it uh, to try to make money out of it. Clearly, you want to pack out Tobin Park as much as possible. Do you feel that there's a pressure, there's an onus on you now to try to get that done? That you've the, People have said, certainly on your behalf, we're going to try and sell 30, whatever, thousand tickets, so I've got to do a lot of talking here. Um, no, I, I think, like, I was, it was, like... I put a lot of pressure to bring on Adam and Frank Warren and, and kind of convinced them to bring the fight to Limerick because I wanted it to be there. And, um, and like, if it sells or it doesn't sell out, it, the tickets are going very well, so it, and if by all indications, it will sell out. So that's, that's, that's you know, a relief. But if it didn't sell out or if it does sell out, it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? If, what matters is the fight itself. And I think it'll be... It's, no matter what the crowd is, it'll still be a, a great atmosphere in there. Yeah, and that's kind of the important thing, really, from your point of view, that, right, it's going to be an absolutely brilliant event. You can't focus on whether there's 26,000 or 29,000 or 33,000 mm. in, the, in the... You have to win the fight. That's the big thing from your point of view, and you kind of have to divorce yourself from that, I suppose. When you're, like, when you're talking about, like, 16,000 people, that's a massive crowd, you know what I mean? Like, so, crowd, yeah. so uh, what, a, what it is, yeah, and... The important thing is the fight. You know what I mean? If sell it out and then lose, what's the point? You know what I mean? Yeah. That, more people to see you fail. <laughs> like that's not <laughs> what you want. How much convincing did Frank Warren take, by the way? Because I, I was quite surprised that, yeah. it, that it happened. Well, yeah, it, would, um, it well, it took a financial convincing kind of thing, you know. And we, we had to make uh, certain guarantees um, for them 
for their side in order for them to come to because the way the deal was struct, uh, structured was because Billy Joe took the step aside for, to allow me to fight Quillen that this fight would be negotiated 50-50 and a joint promotion between Adam and Frank Warren yeah. whereas usually the champion would be favourable and I think with the WBO it's 60-40 in favour of the champion but this one's 50-50 so wherever the fight was going to be more profitable that's where the fight would be and so Adam put together a package and did the, ran the numbers and um, made, made Billy Joe a financial guarantee that no matter what happens no matter how many tickets sell since we're talking like he'll still be paid X amount Yeah. Have you taken anything from the Conor McGregor phenomenon obviously he's a different type of personality but just in the way that he has rallied so many young Irish people around him particularly young Irish men around him in a short space of time yeah, well, he's a phenomenon. Like he's, but it's like for me to start carrying on like that, it wouldn't be. I mean, it'd be be out of my <laughs> out of my character and out of. Uh, he would be like, "What's he doing?" <laughs> I mean, so uh, that would be an interesting yeah, couple yeah, of weeks yeah. of television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, all of a um, sudden. But it, he's done great for himself and what he's created. Like, and um, him as like he's, he's a cultural phenomenon, isn't it? Really, like, well, like more people know about UFC and talk about UFC. It's only because of him in, in Ireland. Like before him, there was. It was a really niche sport, you know, and um, I like I, I'm a big fan of his. I'm not a massive fan of UFC, but I'll, I'd watch his fights and that. Um, but I, I think like UFC, where it, um, it's it's more for this, like it's more for the you know instant gratification kind of generation, you know, like the the, the YouTube video watching generation where. You're in. You watch two guys. They fight each other. It's over quickly, and uh, you know what I mean. There's a, there's a quick payoff. Where like with boxing, there's more of an investment, and sometimes you don't always get the payoff. But you have to appreciate what you're watching in terms of artistry and 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 then the history that's attached to boxing. And I think that's that's no, that's where they the difference between the two. Sports. It's interesting yeah, because you, anytime UFC is bigged up, whether it's McGregor or UFC is a sport, it, it's almost sometimes it's used as a way to denigrate boxing. And people say that mm. a gap began to exist because people were maybe falling out of love with boxing, and that's what UFC is doing. But you don't necessarily see it as a boxing here, UFC there, and they're in competition with each other, or do you? Um, not really. I don't know. Um, it, it depends what you appreciate, but. They're definitely they're exploiting the the gap or boxing's lack of organization. Like the fact that they have one guy organizing it and calling the shots, and they have one champion in each division, it, it's exposing boxing's lack of organization and you know um, cooperation with each other in a, in a way. So yeah, like Al Heyman is starting this new thing in America, this PBC championship, and I can see that's where he's he hasn't officially announced that's where he's gone but that's the way it looks like he's going to try and do where they're getting rid of the boxing like if you watch any of those PBC fights with Al Heyman promotes they don't show any of the belts none of the champions are announced even with my fight against Peter Quillen I wasn't announced as middleweight champion and I wasn't and and in that way I kind of looking back I kind of think he intentionally missed the weight because they wanted it to be a non-title fight you think that's why Quillen yeah I think so yeah didn't weigh in over the limit yeah he weighed in over the limit and it's happened several times in, in those PBC fights that the guys or the fights or the catchweight or the championship fights don't take place because they don't want the championship belts involved they want to have eventually have the PBC championship which will be a standalone sport almost or a standalone so, yeah. version of yeah, boxing their own thing they'll right. have like a unified thing uh, Billy Joe Saunders uh, has done his best to um, get the bad boy tag <laughs> in, this, in this motion what was your initial reaction when you saw the, the comments about women before you, got, you had a chance to think about what you wanted to say about an interview yeah. such as this what did you actually think when you saw that clip I just said like he's a silly boy kind of thing you know like it, it, I think it was a bit tongue in cheek you know uh, uh, but it, you can't, as a sports person in this day and age, you can't be, you can't say anything like that. And as a person, you can't say anything like that in this world nowadays. You know, um, you just can't say those type of things. And it was crazy that he was saying that stuff. And I couldn't, like, it was really hard to, like, I think he was just him and the guy who interviews in that coup and Cassius guy. They kind of have that rapport and dynamic when they talk, where he's kind of outrageous, and the other guy kind of, you know, just lures him in a little bit with all these questions, and he, you know, feeds him, and he gives it. He, you know, he mm. takes it. Take, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I just think it was silly, silly, silly things to be saying, and, and you know, um, unbased and anything. You know what I mean? And, yeah, I mean, yeah. so uh, that was Andy Lee, human beings' reaction. Andy Lee, future Don King promoter style reaction was this. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't even. I was like, Did you I even was think shocked. That that point and Adam like, whispered yeah. in my ears, "Say your champion." 
women boxing. I said, I'm champion women, you know, female boxing and and equal. And, and hey, look, I was adamant that I wanted Katie Taylor to be on the card. And um, uh, I've been a big supporter of her since she, I first met her when she was 15, you know, in the junior boxing club. Even then I was blown away by her and all that she's done since. So I made a point of her being on the card because I wanted you know, her to get a chance to fight on that stage. So... Um, He'd have to, you know, he'd have to. He'd, and in some way, he'd be playing second, like second fiddle to Katie Taylor now, because obviously, me and Katie Taylor are going to be the attractions, and he'll just, he's like, yeah, he'll be the loser on the night. The uh, Saunders himself. I mean, is that the first? Is that the only time you've seen that sort of attitude coming through, or have you noticed? Because he was very polite and respectful in the first yeah, press yeah. conference. Have you noticed any arrogance coming through? Um, not with me, not personally, and I. It, um, it surprised me because he's often been outspoken and uh, you know brash and cocky in, in press conferences before. He fought Gary O'Sullivan from Cork then, and his big thing was I'll never lose to an Irishman. That's what he was saying at the at that press conference. And then with Chris Eubanks, he was saying all sorts of things about the dad and the son, and uh, I wouldn't even repeat what he was saying, you know. Um, so he's a, he's he's not a, like he's a nasty character in a lot of ways, and. Um, yeah, I'm going to teach him a good lesson of humility when I get him in the ring. I don't think Katie Taylor's opponent has been announced yet, but somebody's put their hand up, Murph. Paddy Burns, uh, July 22nd. <laughs> Ask Katie Taylor, me and you, 10 rounds, Andy Lee undercard. I mean, you got to appreciate where Paddy's coming from here. Uh, Katie reckons, uh, well, 10 rounds, you'd love that, Paddy. The longer the fight, the better you get. We'll give the fans what they want. <laughs> so I'm really that kind of thing. That's maybe 80% a joke and then 20%, well, listen, yeah. make the fight, yeah, Andy. Yeah, you know, yeah, we can yeah, do yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I'll teach Paddy Burns a lesson. <laughs> You might uh, be careful what he wishes for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, that might be yeah, that might be the case. All right. Something else from that video of uh, Billy Joe Saunders struck me, and that was he was talking about Golovkin, and it's not the first time he's talked about this. Where again, I suppose you said there, there's a tone to that video that he does with that mm. that presenter, and they, it's meant to be this. I don't know, it's supposed to be this candid, maybe light-hearted t- type of tone. But he was saying, look, we all know I've got a good chance of beating Andy Lee. I'd never beat Golovkin. I mean, it's not, no point getting in the ring with that guy. I just know I'd lose. And eventually he says, well, maybe if I got enough money, I'd wait up. Maybe I'd go in the ring with him. Did that strike you as maybe a chink in the armour of somebody? It's not that he's fighting Golovkin this time, but that he would consider the fact that he wouldn't have a chance against another guy in the division. Yeah, if I'm honest, I think some, some like, why he's being so humble in these um, press conferences and stuff where, and when he's talking about me is that he knows he's, I'm going to beat him. I think he knows that. Uh, so the feeling that he has yeah, against Golovkin, you think I he think actually he's carrying it now, and everything yeah. he's doing is just lip service. You know, um, I think he. I don't like. I don't think he knows that, but I think he knows there's a good chance that he's going to get beat. It's, and that's and that's why I think he was happy, not happy, but he was happy to come to Limerick because it's away from his home, and um, that would be so, like, not many of his fans or people would maybe watch it or travel to see it and he won't feel like it's such a loss when it's away you know it's on a different ground like, it's almost an excuse it gives him an out yeah yeah, yeah. It gives him an out and it gives him you know well I fought a great champion in his hometown and blah 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 and kind of thing you know mm. maybe the uh, he said talking to Kieran Shannon you said to beat somebody that's never been beaten you're going to have to make him accept the defeat before you physically beat them mm. can you explain that to us well, like he doesn't know what it's like as a pro- professional to lose. Last time he lost would have been the uh, Beijing Olympics. So it's been a long time that he's gone undefeated. So that's a positive, though, for him. I would have thought. Yeah, of course. And but he's never like he's never been in a situation where he he has a genuine chance of losing. Where he's, he's always been heavily favoured going into any fight that he's had. So yeah, you know, the, not 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 quit like. The first time to quit is is the hardest time to quit, like because once you quit once you're all, like then you become almost you know you allow that that weakness in but quitting and getting beat is two different things and I think yeah you just have to make him accept it you know when he, from the first round what I intend to do is hit him with hard punches very often and when he's taking those punches he'll have to say well this is not happened I'm not used to being hit like this and he'll have those moments of doubt in his mind and. Um, he just have to accept defeat, and that's that's the way it comes. You know what I mean? Like it'll become a realization that wow, I'm actually going to lose this fight. Will you see that before any of us there or anybody watching on TV will see it? Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the two boxers generally yeah, will know even yeah. before there might be an obvious uh, yeah. an, an obvious problem. that that was apparent with Karabov, even though he was winning the fight. The change in his body language and he's the link we have between his eyes. What I could see that 
yeah, he knew I was coming on strong. And just his facial expression and everything about him, he knew that I was coming on strong. And not coming on strong, but like working my way into the fight with each passing round. And he was kind of diminishing. And everything he was doing that was effective early was no longer being effective. And it was taking away his confidence with each passing moment, you know. You're having to take on a different... I suppose mental um, challenge this time fighting such a huge fight in front of so many of your home fans have you got to change your approach to it mentally are you doing anything different on the psychological side of things this time no um, just preparing for the like you always kind of do that imagery work in your mind anyway like where you kind of just in any spare moment or if you're out running or lying in bed you kind of try, try to plan it out in your head and try to imagine everything and, and see everything that and prepare yourself and that's that's the only thing I'm doing you know but just it's a different setting and um, just have to like manage if I, I'm sure there'll be a lot of demand down there for people who want your time and you know they'll be just try to be protected from all that stuff How specific is that vis- visualisation? Do you are you thinking right it's the sixth round I've just been troubled a little bit this is what I'm going to do to get out of it? Yeah well yeah well not really I kind of Imagine being in the dressing room, going through the routine, the walkout, you know, wrapping the hands, the walkout, and then try to imagine the crowd and the noise, then the ring and the announcement, the looking and he's like looking at him, seeing how he, how he reacts, and then the first couple of rounds. That's that's all I really plan for because after that you're in a fight and it's kind of better not to have a plan, you know. Physically, uh, is is it a similar training pattern? Would it be a similar training pattern to your previous fights? Yeah, um, different. He's a southpaw, so he offers different, you know, different things that he's going to tr- try and do. But he allow that uh, him being a southpaw, me being a southpaw, allows me to do different things as well. You know, be more. Not, um, he, he's a he's like a he's a crafty boxer, and a lot of time he's he's quite elusive. He throws fast punches and then kind of slips and moves around. So. In some ways, I'll have to be more assertive, more aggressive, and f- fight. A, I think fight a similar fight to the Carbov fight in terms of my approach, taking the distance from him when he attacks, and making him fall short, and then making him pay. But also, I'll have to be more aggressive at times as well. I was reading last week that you've been hoping to have Paul O'Connell carry the belt into the ring, but it's not going to happen. He's on it's World not, Cup. Yeah, team. yeah. Have you yeah. got a, Have you got a second choice lined not up? Not yet. Not yet. We'll, um, you know, that was res- was reserved for him, so we'll give it a while before we replace, find his replacement. Murph, you're free that night, aren't you? September yeah. 19th? Uh, well, actually, as it happens, uh, I am. I have cleared my schedule. Who did so, Mayweather uh, and Pacquiao have again? Jimmy Kimmel Jimmy was involved Kimmel, yeah. 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 I, I look at myself as the Irish J- Jimmy Kimmel. You know, me or Brendan O'Connor, maybe. Be- uh, so. Bieber was in there as well, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber, yeah. yeah. That setup, yeah. Okay, so, hmm, there's a, a, a lot to think about there. <laughs> yeah. Niall Horan, uh, he's our Justin Bieber, right? <laughs> I saw you say that uh, this is a life experience. You want this to be a life experience you can look back on. Are you taking it in now? Are you enjoying the build-up? Is it, is it all nerves this far out, or is it an enjoyable time? It's, um, it's just a route. It's just an, for me, for, right now, it's just training. And, it's um, just what you do all yeah, the time. Yeah, just what I'm boxer, doing, exactly yeah. what I'm doing for the last number of fights. So it's, it's, it's training. You can, and the fight's kind of off in the distance. Like I was in Town Park only Friday, and um, that kind of got me excited. You know what I mean? Just seeing it and being there every time I go in there, it's you know, it's, it gives you a little, little buzz. So um, that made it real. You know, going there and seeing the actual place makes it real. But when when you're away, you're kind of detached and you're just training. Well, September nineteenth. If people want to get their hands on tickets, Ticketmaster. Uh, Ticketmaster, yeah. Um, I think it's forward slash showdown. But I suppose just put in Andy Lee, Billy Joe Saunders, and you'll get the tickets. And yeah, tickets are selling very well. We're very happy, and thanks to everyone who's got tickets so far. And yeah, we'll see you on the nineteenth. Yeah, it's going to be an unbelievable night, and we'll uh, I'm sure we'll chat to you again before then, before the time being. Andy, thanks a million. Thanks, guys. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen unanswered punches. I'm a champion now, I want to defend my belt in Ireland, and I'll fight the best in the world. Congratulations, Andy. Up the Irish, get in. Hard left hand. Oh. 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 There's that Andy, there's that right hook. There's that Johnny, my right hook. He caught it.
winner by TKO victory, and now the WBO middleweight champion of the world, Irish Andy. All right, lovely to hear Andy in such good form as he always is. Uh, that was a chat that we recorded yesterday. The news has come in, you might well be aware, since then that unfortunately Katie Taylor actually won't be fighting on that undercard. Uh, that has just been announced in the last little while. But we decided just to leave that part of the chat in there because uh, we wanted you to hear Andy's thoughts on Billy Joe Saunders and his his comments about women's boxing and uh, women's place in society, according to Billy Joe Saunders. So we just thought we'd let you hear what Andy had to say about that. Unfortunately, that's uh, a bit of a blow, really, overall, that Katie Taylor won't be uh, involved. It's a night that you'd really hope she would be there to be a part of. Maybe that can be resolved, whatever is going on there at the moment. Andy, not fully buying our line, Murph, that he's become Ireland's answer to Don King. No, not quite. Don't know how comfortable he is in that. Not quite. But role. I mean, I, I think that, you know, and he's he's right in that the, the pressure that we're kind of talking to him about how he's maybe trying to handle that as a as a promoter as well as, as a fighter who has to go into the ring and do his business. That's the... the that's the pressure of being a champion. That's the pressure of having a fight in your hometown, that you want it to be a huge event. You want it to be as intimidating as possible for your opponent. But you can't actually worry about any of that. What you have to actually worry about is just winning the fight, however you want to win the fight. And the pressure that we're talking about, it doesn't really matter whether he's the promoter or whether he's just a hometown fighter defending his world title in front of as many of his fans as he as as you know, as 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 it's possible to get into that stadium, that's the pressure really more so than any sort of financial or any sort of uh, business role that he has in the selling of the fight. The weekend's GA is something we haven't caught up with just yet. The quarterfinals and final round qualifiers, eight of the twelve best teams nominally were in action on Saturday and Sunday. An average winning margin of thirteen points in those games. Um, mm-hmm. And 12. you'll notice uh, on that Gola fell comfortably inside that. Uh, uh, average defeat, uh, only lost by ten. So, uh, well, three teams fell within the average. It was Kildare really bump, <laughs> bumping things up. Unfortunately, the odds there a little. Yeah. Twenty-seven points there. Jim McGuinness in today's Irish Times wrote a very interesting column, which starts with the words, "I found what happened in Croke Park this weekend to be an eerie and uh, to be eerie and genuinely disturbing. It made me fear for the game." Uh, it says elsewhere, "My feeling is nationally there's a culture of mediocrity. Not everything's being done to develop the talents of young players." If a group of good players comes through in a county, it's regarded as a gift, a boon. It need not be like that. Uh, essentially, his argument here is, look, people have banged on about the cynical play ruining Gaelic football when actually what could ruin Gaelic football is the, the fact that a tournament doesn't even begin properly until the semi-final stage. People won't turn out to watch quarterfinals. There might have been 60,000 this year, but there won't be in a few years if these hammerings continue. And there does look like a possibility of that happening. I, I, hopefully everyone's not being too knee-jerk about it. But you see, particularly on Sunday, you see what happened there and uh, they're supposed to be all Ireland quarterfinals. It's somewhat dispiriting. I don't know what you thought of McGuinness's article. Yeah, no, I thought it was really good. And it's not a case of... Right, well, you know, it was just a freak. You know, Kildare managed to get to an Ireland uh, quarterfinal. You know, who, what, what, who, in what alternative universe would you ever think that Kildare could possibly get to an Ireland quarterfinal? I mean, the Fermanagh thing, right, they went on a run, they beat a couple of good teams, uh, and hey, they got to the quarterfinals, which w- would suggest they've outperformed to some gigantic degree. Um, Kildare are the sort of counties that you're looking at to if if you're looking at say the top five teams in the country, top say the top four, Donegal, Mayo. I mean, we keep everyone keeps leaving Monaghan out of these top four teams, even though Monaghan have beaten Donegal in the last like three weeks. But if you take the top five counties, right? If you're looking around the place, scratching around for other counties that should be there, you're looking at say Cork, you're looking at Galway, who you know got to the last twelve, not the last eight, and you're completely looking at places like Kildare and Mead that have huge population centres, huge playing numbers, recent success at underage level, you know, modest though it may be, Kildare have won quite a, a, a few Leinster under-21 titles over the last couple of years. Like, these are the counties. Mm. You, know, you can't sort of construct an argument to say, well, you know, Kildare, it's not like Kildare are going to be there every year. Kildare should be there every year. That's the, the whole idea of it is that Kildare should be there. And Jim's article today was basically centred around there are Michael Murphys in Kildare. There, there are footballers, if not quite as good as Michael Murphy or Colin Cooper. There are footballers with the raw materials playing the game at 13 and 14 years old that, if harnessed, 
can be as dominant a footballer as Colin Cooper or Michael Murphy. And it's kind of hard to make the argument the other way that, oh, well, it, as he says, Kerry, uh, babies in Kerry are born with the ability to kick off both feet. Mm. And that's just it. You know, you just have to sign up to it and that's it. You, 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 there's no way you can make that argument. David Epstein <laughs> certainly wouldn't make that argument. So the... Uh, it's largely based on uh, it's largely aimed at county boards it seems uh, what McGuinness is saying that uh, even in his own experience the finance they needed to coach the team properly he he drummed up a lot of it supporters drummed up a lot of it it wasn't there was no great rhyme or reason to how that happened and also because it was so short term he didn't feel he was able to devote the finance and the energy to sorting it out from the bottom up so as, as, uh, you'd even wonder what he thinks is going to happen in Donegal maybe in five or ten years yeah, time. Yeah, and he, he looks across uh, across the border of Tyrone at a county that has actually done it right, that have uh, uh, f- uh, funding in place in the region of half a million euro every year that just drives football in that county every single year. And that that's... that. And the, the, the key thing here, I suppose, is that... And it's kind of a, you know, a, a, a thing we don't want to talk about in the GA is that the best counties have loads of money, so they're just going to stay really good, and that's that's just the way it is. Like Kerry went off to uh, New York in May; they didn't even bring any of their actual current footballers. A county board, uh, a couple of county board officials, and some heroes from the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties went over there and raised obscene amounts of money just by tapping into the diaspora in New York, held a couple of big fundraisers, and came back with enough money to to fund the preparation of the senior team and the minor team and the under 21 team for the for the year and like that's that's a the, the point that Jim McGuinness is making is that the Kerry County Board have their they have their shit together so they can they can raise money Dublin have the sort of corporate uh, power that means that they, do, they don't even have to go to that sort of length they can just they say to companies we're an absolute sure fire hit give us money and they that's the way they they, they get it done so the this idea that it's you know, it's it, well. It is actually it, it's a level playing field as long as you have people in place at the highest level, and we're not talking about managers, county board officials uh, that know their way around business. The gap can close, but the way Jim McGuinness said that his experience of county boards is that there are not many people like that out there. But why is it always the negative in Gaelic football if one team scores a lot of, of goals and points? And I mean, Kerry score seven sixteen, and people are saying. Oh, the game is good. The game's gone. Why not say Kerry are really good? Like Colin Cooper is a brilliant player. He's like back scoring goals and points. You know, this is a this is an exhibition of football, the likes of which you rarely see in any year. That was said also, and it was, and I was there to see those goals, and it really is stunning to watch Kerry yeah. in full flight like that. Probably more. When they're at it like that and on song, it's actually there's something even a little bit different about how they go about it than even Dublin well, to be honest, or those other to be honest, counties do. I'm not sure about that, Owen. But I mean, ultimately, I, that gets. I don't know if I go that far. But that gets boring. It's supposed to be an All Ireland quarter final and it's a complete landslide. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you. This is what we've been putting up with all summer. Like you're kind of looking at Dublin games, thinking, well, it's still a privilege to watch Jeremy Connolly and Bernard Brogan play. They're brilliant footballers, and in due course, you'll be telling your grandkids about it. Yeah, I know, but. You won't be telling your grandkids about the Dublin Fermanagh All Ireland Quarter Final 2015. No, the only thing that the only the only thing that made that was Fermanagh's attitude, and Dublin did their bit, but Fermanagh's supporters and McGuinness actually saw this almost as a negative that fans shouldn't really be getting that carried away with a team who's just been beaten by eight points, even though he understood it. I actually thought it was the only thing that lent a little bit of life to the day in Croke Park was the fact that Fermanagh supporters were going absolutely insane when they were putting mm. a few scores on the board towards the end. And then Dublin fans reacted, of course, because it felt like, oh, hang on a second, there's some weird competitiveness to this last 15 minutes, even though everyone knows what the result's going to be. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's uh, Kieran Priestley sent me a very good article that he wrote himself on his blog um, yesterday. I'll tweet it, actually, once uh, the show is up. But it, it's just basically an analysis of the of wins by ten points or more in provincial finals dating back, say, the five year period from nineteen ninety one to nineteen ninety five. Thirteen different teams won provincial titles, and there was only one final decided by ten points or more. In the last five years, uh, there was there were uh, excuse me, where is it? Seven provincial finals in the uh, seven in the, teams. 
Set, no, seven, seven provincial decided finals decided by of the 10 20. points or more. Yeah, by 10 points or more, including Mayo's 26-point demolition of Sligo in this year's kind of final. It's basically the likelihood of a team being defeated by 10 points or more in a provincial final has increased by more than 100% in 10 years. And it, it, the, the fact of the matter is, this is happening a lot more often than it used to, and it's a lot more often than the game needs. Yeah, the, the point that Jim Guinness makes is that it actually gets hard to watch. Yeah. At least for him, anyway. I mean, some people might be cheering, uh, having great... But he's saying, I, I find it really uncomfortable to watch people being humiliated like that. Yeah, he said he was cringing inside, but listen, we're going to have to leave it on that note. Have a listen to the, have a read of the article, I should say, if you haven't had a look at it yet, irishtimes.com. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Al. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. We've got a football podcast already out there, ready to go. So have a listen to that if you have time. Take care. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.